everyone, and welcome to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. When I began researching the subject of vanishing persons weeks ago, I immediately started noticing more news accounts dealing with that subject. Because we're bombarded with so much news every day, we never really pay attention to things unless we're connected in some way. I had done an episode on the missing men of Boston about a year ago. It seems Boston has an abnormally high ratio of young college men who end up getting fished out of the Charles River Basin, their lives having been lost due to a frozen slip into the icy waters, sometimes while relieving themselves outside of the local riverfront bars, or as in the case of one event taped by security cameras, committing suicide by jumping in and never calling for rescue. I ended the show by sharing suicide hotline numbers and letting people know that teen suicide is a rising problem and sometimes the only life preserver is a friend who isn't afraid to ask questions and seek help. Regarding missing people, I've shelved the story a few times over the past month because it involves so much pain and loss for so many. Popular threads exist out there in places like Reddit where people post stories, often scary ones, for the public to consume which they do in big numbers. Those stories are popular. Some of the stories will pique the public interest only to be announced as fake by the person who submitted them, which doesn't do much for credibility. Skeptics have a field day with all this stuff. And why not? It's an easy target. A fairly recent series of books titled Missing 411 by author David Politis are doing extremely well. And you can listen to him on YouTube as he talks about his books and about missing persons, especially those missing from national parks, which he proves have been host to a number of unexplained disappearances. He has studied over a thousand missing persons cases that have taken place in North American national and state parks in the past 50 years, and has been able to piece together what he believes are similarities to those cases which have remained unexplained, unsolved, or cause unknown. Politis has credibility earned with 17 years on the police force in San Jose, California. And yes, he's done a lot of research on cryptids, like Bigfoot and the paranormal. The skeptics say it hurts his credibility. I say, good for him, because the more research I read, the more I'm convinced there's a host of things we just don't know about what's out there, and I hope I never run into them. I also enjoy the stories that come out of this paranormal genre. Some probably pure entertainment. Others, well, where there's smoke, there's usually fire. This episode, the first of two, is going to uncover all kinds of paranormal possibilities, from coexisting dimensions, to time travel, to missing 411. I decided to research missing stories because in addition to being spooky, salacious entertainment, for some, I hope it puts a little reminder in the back of all your brains to stay close to your friends and family especially children, whenever you're in an unfamiliar place, be it a city, a store, or a national park. My disclaimer for this episode, many of the 411 missing stories take place in national parks. I encourage all parents to take your kids on camping trips, on walks through the woods, and to spend time in our national parks. Keep the kids close. But teach them that 99% of all the creatures in the outdoors are more afraid of you than you are of them, especially at night. The experience of camping outdoors is one of the most exciting things you can do. It awakens all your senses and puts you in touch with nature. The memories you gain from it are lifetime memories. 
all of you who enjoy the outdoors, and I know a few of you are backcountry guides, I'm sure share those same views. Today is Wednesday, September 26, 2018. Right now, North Carolina authorities are searching for a six-year-old boy who vanished from Rankin Lake Park in Gastonia on Saturday. WSOC-TV reported that Maddox Rich disappeared around 1.30 p.m. Saturday while with his family at Rankin Lake. Family members stated they last saw him at the park area with his dad and another adult when he wandered off on his own, according to authorities. They were walking around the lake, Gastonia spokeswoman Rachel Bagley said. They got around to the back side of the lake. He started running, according to the parents, and when they started running after him, they just lost sight of him, and then no one has seen him since. Maddox is four feet tall and weighs about 45 pounds. He has blonde hair, blue eyes, and was last seen wearing black shorts and an orange shirt with I'm the Man printed on the front. He is autistic and nonverbal, according to police. These stories make your blood boil. You ask yourself, where the hell were the parents? How could they take their eyes off this child? And then you think, okay, wait a minute. I'm being too quick to judge. This is a public park at 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon. The frantic family searched all over and called in help. A search party couldn't find any trace of the boy. When you start digging, you find out that sadly, this is happening all the time. Every week. Maybe every day for all we know. Is it human predators? If so, there are a lot of them willing to risk getting the death penalty for this kind of crime. Animal predators? At a North Carolina park? On a trail through the woods? Doubtful. A sinkhole? That's a possibility. Something else? More sinister? Unexplained? Maybe. So natural curiosity and a desire to help in some way leads us to wonder, what's going on? When it comes to missing and unexplained occurrences in national parks, the missing 411 books by Politis hypothesize that many 411 cases are linked by a set of bizarre circumstances that seem to form a pattern. For example, especially in the case of missing children, the subject seems to vanish into thin air despite being accompanied by another person. The skeptic within us will say that many parents believe you can't let a child out of your sight for even a second, especially in strange country or in water. So when the parents report that their child was there one second and gone the next, they aren't going to be eager to report that during that one second they were distracted by a cell phone call or just enjoying the surroundings. But on the other hand, that doesn't hold water when, after three days of searching, complete with dogs, no tracks are found, no traces found, nothing. And that has happened far too many times. In the summer of 1938, four-year-old Alfred Bielharts was on a fishing and camping trip with his family at Colorado's Rocky Mountain National Park. As the boy and his parents were taking a hike along the river, little Alfred suddenly simply disappeared without explanation. One moment he had been there walking in line behind them, and the next the parents had turned around to find he was gone without a trace. There had been no shout or sign of distress and all calls to him went unanswered. He had seemingly just ceased to exist. 
Although the parents claimed that the boy had gone nowhere near the water, authorities were nevertheless convinced that he had fallen into the river and immediately went about blocking off the river so that it could be thoroughly searched and so that his body would not float too far away. A six-mile stretch of the river where Alfred had vanished was searched and dredged for five full days without turning up any sign of the young boy. And when bloodhounds were brought in, they oddly tracked his scent to around 500 feet uphill from where his parents had been when he had disappeared. Which was odd, considering he had absolutely gone missing as he was walking behind them. Also strange was that allegedly the bloodhounds followed the trail for some time before reaching a fork and suddenly stopping and simply lying down. An odd behavior for trained scent dogs to display. And also strange because it seemed that the trail had just abruptly stopped to vanish just as surely as the boy had. Even more bizarre than this was an odd report that came in from some hikers in the area in the early stages of the search the very day after Alfred had vanished. The hikers, who were a couple, had been on Old Fall River Road about six miles away over rugged terrain and around 3,000 feet higher from where Alfred had disappeared, and at the time had had no idea that there was a missing boy in the area. Yet they reported seeing a rather worrying sight. They claimed that they had seen a young boy perched up upon a high ridge in an area ominously called the Devil's Nest, near the top of Mount Chaplin. The hikers reported that the boy had been forlornly sitting alone up there and had then suddenly moved out of sight, which the hikers mysteriously, allegedly said, looked as if he were being jerked back out of sight. At the time, they could not figure out how such a young boy would be out there in the remote wilderness by himself or how he could have possibly climbed up into that formidably high ridge. According to the hikers, as soon as they had gotten home and seen the news, they had realized that the boy they had seen was the missing Alfred Bielharts. Authorities acted on the tip and made the journey out to Devil's Nest, a perilous hike through thick, unforgiving, forested terrain littered with rough brush and dense trees. And there at the top of the looming ridge, they could find no trace of the boy. Considering the difficulty of the terrain the elevation, and the steep, treacherous climb up to the ridge on which the hikers had claimed to have seen the boy, park rangers came to the conclusion that it would have been impossible for the boy to have made the hike out there in the time frame involved on his own, and that he could not have possibly climbed the ridge alone without specialized climbing equipment and experience. There are several weird details about this case. How did Alfred manage to just vanish right under his parents' noses without making a sound? What happened to his scent trail, and why did the bloodhounds following him act so oddly? How could Alfred hike all the way up Mount Chaplin, trudging six miles and 3,000 feet through unforgiving perilous terrain in such a short time, and then climb up onto that high ridge by himself? What did the hikers mean that he was jerked back? We will probably never know, and Alfred Bielharts has never been found. This disconcerting habit of turning up in unlikely places, or surprisingly far from where they disappeared, is a common feature among mysterious cases of vanished children. In 1992, 12-year-old Kenny Miller went missing in Yosemite National Park, 
while on a hiking trip along the Pacific Crest Trail with his family. The developmentally disabled boy was last seen throwing pebbles into a creek in an area called Meese Meadows and had allegedly been out of his parents' sight for just a few minutes before seeming to vanish off the face of the earth. An intensive search was unable to locate any trace of the boy or where he had gone off to. A month later, some hikers discovered Kenny's body in the Carson Pass area west of Mice Meadows. The body was found on a soaring ridge in a treacherous, rocky, brush-choked terrain nearly 1,500 feet higher than where he had mysteriously gone missing. And it was unclear how the 12-year-old mentally challenged boy, who had reportedly the mental capability of a 4-year-old, had been able to get there on his own. The cause of death was thought to be exposure, but it was unclear as to exactly what had happened. Another Politis story tells the strange case of a two-year-old boy who went missing near the Umatilla National Forest in Oregon. Although the boy was found 19 hours later, he was discovered in an area 12 miles away through rough mountainous terrain, which would have been difficult for an adult and impossible for such a young child to have traversed in that amount of time. Equally weird is another case recounted by Paulitas in which an unnamed seven-year-old boy vanished from in front of his home in Arizona. Bloodhounds were unable to pick up any scent trail for the boy, and an aerial search turned up nothing. He was eventually located two days later, dazed and wandering about out in the desert, 20 miles from where he had gone missing. Oddly, the boy was in remarkably good condition, considering he had had no water yet he was not dehydrated and showed no signs of negative effects from exposure, even though nighttime temperatures had dropped to below freezing. It was uncertain just how the boy had disappeared, how he had covered so much distance over harsh terrain while managing to remain in such good health, or how he had managed to not leave a scent for hounds to follow or be detected by aerial searches, all of which went on. It remains an enigma to this day, just no logical explanations. Another case of a child turning up in an unusual place is the case of five-year-old Stephen McCarran, who, on September 17, 1988, was visiting his aunt and uncle's home in Ayr, Scotland, for what was to be a fun-filled one-week trip, including a visit to a popular amusement park called Ayr's Wonder West World. The trip got off to a bright, fun start, with little Stephen thoroughly enjoying his time at the theme park, but things would take a dark turn for the worse. At one point, Stephen was playing on the escalator, and the parents were looking away for just a moment, yet the boy managed to vanish from right under their noses without making a sound. Thinking that young Stephen had simply wandered off, the parents did a search of the area, calling out his name, but couldn't find any sign of their son. As you can imagine, Increasingly panicked, they notified park security, who were also unable to locate the missing boy. The police were notified, and from there would launch one of the largest manhunts for a missing child in Scotland's history. Hundreds of searchers scoured the park and a six-square-mile radius around it, including divers combing the rivers and ponds and aircraft patrolling the skies. But no sign of Stephen McCarran was found. He had simply vanished without a trace, into thin air. 
After the strange disappearance, several strange reports began to trickle in of witnesses who claimed to have seen the missing boy in the days after his vanishing. One such report claimed that the boy had been seen several hours after he had gone missing in the company of a middle-aged man at the Wonder West World Cafe, during which time the boy was described as looking distressed. Another witness claimed to have sighted the boy climbing over the park's fence, and yet others claimed to have seen the missing boy walking dazedly along a nearby road. Authorities were under the impression that Stephen had been kidnapped, but there was little evidence of this. Another theory was that he had simply run away, but the boy had been hotly anticipating his trip to the amusement park and had been a happy, well-adjusted child who loved his family. There seems to be no reason for him to have wanted to run away. For two weeks the search commenced, and then tragedy came. On October 2nd, Stephen McCarran's lifeless body was found around six miles from the theme park and just outside of the search area. An examination of the body found that there were no signs of violence, injury, or foul play, and it was assumed that he had perhaps died of exposure. The strange part was that his body was found in a ditch in the middle of rough terrain full of marshes, hills, forests, and gullies, which would have been hard for an adult to navigate, let alone a young boy, a full six miles from where he had gone missing. Oddly, when the boy was found, his socks were stuffed in his back pocket, and his shoes were still on. Why and how had he ended up there? And why had he removed his shoes, taken his socks off, put them in his pocket, and then put the shoes back on? Stephen's family insisted that it was impossible for their son to have willingly left the park and to have ended up there alone, and were convinced that someone had dumped him there. The detail of the shoes removed and the socks put into that pocket were also suspicious, as Stephen's father claimed that his son had not even been able to put on or take off his shoes on his own. And even if he could, why would he have done so? Despite the family's calls for a deeper investigation, authorities ended up concluding that the little boy had wandered off, hiked out there through some of the roughest terrain in Scotland, taken his socks off and put his shoes back on, before finally succumbing to exhaustion and the elements. Again, no plausible explanation. Other cases marry the phenomenon of being in an unusual location with a variety of other oddness. There was the case of three-year-old Jared Atadero, who in October of 1999 was staying with his father at a Christian retreat lodge at Poudre Canyon, Colorado. On October 2nd, Jared was out with 12 of the Christian group members on a hike along the Big South Trail when he, at age three, I'll add, was allowed to stray from the group. He approached and talked to some fishermen along the Catch La Poudre River, asking them if they'd seen any bears, to which they replied that the boy should get back with the others. They didn't make a move to escort the toddler back to his parents, just sat there doing what they were doing and ignored him. Those fishermen would be the last ones to see Jared Atadero alive. In the wake of his disappearances, a massive search using bloodhounds and aircraft was unable to find any trace of the boy. It was largely assumed that he had fallen into the frigid waters of the river and drowned. It wasn't until four years later that he finally would be found. On June 4, 2003, when his remains were discovered up in a remote, inaccessible area up a steep incline 
about 500 feet above the trail he had vanished on. This is where the case gets very strange. On the dead boy's cranium were found a series of odd scratches that were assumed to be from a mountain lion. Yet big cat experts pointed out that a cougar would have torn at the sweater and body near the neck and stomach, damage that was absent. Indeed, there were no other apparent injuries on the body. Politis claimed that he spoke to forensics experts on the case who told him that, although the source of the scratches could not be determined, they were not from any known animal. Other odd details about the body were that the boy's clothes had been turned inside out, and a single tooth from his mouth had been found placed upon a nearby log, strangely not overgrown with moss or vegetation, considering that it had presumably been sitting there for four years. The clothes and shoes themselves were also surprisingly brightly colored and new-looking for having been out in the elements for four years. What in the world had happened to Jared Atadero? Was this an animal attack, a kidnapping, or something more? In following up, a number of theories have been put forward, and the only one that seems to fit is that the boy was picked up by an adult eagle. Eagles grow big and can have five, six-foot wingspan, and they can pick up small animals, and dropped high up on the hill into an inaccessible location. He may have been low to the ground. The boy may have survived the drop and fought off the eagle, only to die of exposure. The lesson? Obvious. Never let a three-year-old out of your sight. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In 2017, the movie Missing 411 came out, highly critical of national parks, in which a preponderance of unexplained missing person events have taken place, and the parks admitted lack of record-keeping regarding the occurrences. They openly admit that local law enforcement is responsible for investigating these circumstances, and that they, the national parks, do not, as a rule, maintain an accessible database for every death and disappearance, explained or unexplained because it is not within their parameters or their budget to do so. And we can understand that. Back in the day, you would see signs over McDonald's restaurants saying, over one million hamburgers served. Imagine a sign over your national park saying, over 1,600 unsolved missing person cases to date. And that's the number being given now by the numbers people, who make the case that 331 million people enjoy our national parks every year, and only 1,600 unsolved missing person cases exist since we started keeping records. Of course, the number found dead isn't included there. Here are some stories of unusual occurrences. These are not verified in any way. An Iraq war veteran who wrote about how he thinks he was almost snatched from a park goes like this. His Reddit post stated that he had had a very strange experience 12 years ago in Starved Rock State Park, Illinois. It was so bizarre at the time that he never discussed it. He was inspired to post history after reading the Missing 411 stories and realizing that what he had encountered fit into the Missing 411 unexplained profile. 
He wrote, I was visiting my girlfriend in Chicago. On a sunny and calm winter day, we decided to go for a hike at Starved Rock State Park, Illinois. I'm an avid hiker, and being on leave from Iraq, I wanted to take in some cool, fresh air. We hiked the park for several hours. In late afternoon, we started heading back to the car. About a half a mile away from the parking lot, we came into an area where tree branches were broken and pulled towards or over the trail. Most of the branches were broken high up, I'd say eight feet or more off the ground. I'd lived in Washington before going to Iraq and knew something of Sasquatch areas. So I told my girlfriend it looked like a Squatch area due to the branches broken off up high and pulled over the trail. That's about the time things started to get strange. Soon after mentioning this, I felt like someone was staring at me. It's like if you go in a room with a lot of people and someone is focused on you, you get an uneasy feeling and can tell you're being watched. It was like this, but stronger. I started to look around to see who was watching me. It was winter, and the forest was visible hundreds of feet in all directions. There was a group of walkers several hundred feet behind us, and no one in front of us, but I saw no one staring at me. As we passed through the Squatch area, I began to have the feeling someone was behind me, following us. I looked around and listened, but saw and heard nothing. There was just the people 400 feet or so back on the trail, and they were talking amongst themselves. They weren't looking our way. The sense of someone being behind me was persistent, so I kept looking behind me, I'd say at least twice a minute. But there was just the group way back. The feeling of being watched is one thing, but the feeling like someone is close behind you is something else. It is more disturbing. I told my girlfriend to go further in front of me and let her go about 20 feet in front because I had a strong sensation of a nearby presence just behind us. So I turn around not more than 30 seconds since the last time I looked back, and there is this woman there. She was walking, but coming up on me fast. There was something way off about her speed. She was walking when I spotted her, but her speed was much faster than her gait. It was as if she was on a people-mover escalator, like in an airport. She was coming up fast, and I'd say no more than 15 or 20 feet behind me when I saw her. I was rather alarmed, and I glared at her. She stopped when her eyes met. I gave her a look like, What the hell are you coming up on me like that? We stood there, staring at each other. Neither of us moved. She had her head cocked back to her left and looked at me from the corner of her eyes in a slightly alarmed, you caught me, type of look. She was completely normal looking, like a local Chicago lady, late fifties, wearing a bright red winter coat, gloves, slacks, etc. In hindsight, there are a few other things besides her speed which stand out. The first thing is, there was no sound, no footsteps, no rustling in the woods, nothing to tell me to turn around other than the strong sense of something behind me which I had had for a bit. At the speed she was moving, she would have had to have been running hard, but I heard no footsteps. She wasn't breathing hard, and her mouth was closed. Her gait was a walking gait. She wasn't running. However, she was moving towards me at a running speed. I mean fast. When she stopped, I'd say she was less than 20 feet from me. At the speed she was moving, in one or two seconds, she'd have been on me. 
The next thing that stands out is her features. She had no distinguishing features, none in her hair, skin, or clothing. No shadowing or skin hues, dimples, etc. As a former Army criminal investigator, I know how to look for distinctive markings on people and clothing. There were none. I'd estimate her height at 5 foot 10 inches. Her clothes were of uniform coloring and indistinct. It was like she just stepped out of a department store. Her bright red coat was pristine with a uniform hue to it. There wasn't even shading, which there should have been given the clear sky and the low sun. After staring at each other, I'd say five to ten seconds. I felt like I got my point across, so I turned around and continued walking. My girlfriend had not noticed anything and had continued walking. I took about three steps and realized there was no way she could have come up from that group in the thirty or so seconds since I had last looked back. There was also nowhere to come from on either side. Visibility at that point was hundreds of feet all around. I said to myself, No way, and spun back around. She was gone, simply vanished. I checked the group behind us, and no one had a red coat on or was looking at us. There was no one else around, and there had been no sounds other than my footfalls. The woman had just vanished. From that point, it took us about 10 minutes to reach the car. For the remainder of the walk, I did not feel like I was being stared at or followed. I have never been back to Starved Rock State Park and have no intention of going back. The whole thing was bizarre. How was I supposed to tell anyone about that? So I never have. My mental state was fine. I have a high IQ and a 20-year career in a STEM field following Army service. At the time, I was working a DOD IT contract in Iraq. I was well-rested and relaxed being on vacation with my girlfriend. There were no drugs or alcohol involved. These are strictly prohibited in my line of work and were grounds for immediate termination under MNFI's GO-1, which I was subject to at the time. I've carried this experience around for 12-plus years, being unable to talk about it because it was so exceptional and unexplainable. It's a relief to read similar stories of unusual encounters and disappearances. After reading many missing 411 accounts and the profile of disappearances, I believe I narrowly averted being snatched by whatever that thing was. I do not think it was the woman I saw. I think it was something different, which I could not see. And another story. One woman's account of finding herself in a different location than she was while hiking. About three-quarters of a mile into the hike on a well-marked trail, she walked maybe five feet up the trail to have a look at a brightly colored sign attached to a tree, which gave the name of the national forest she was in. She read the sign, turned around to get back on the trail, and literally, the trail wasn't there. Vanished. Another veteran who recounts a bizarre experience hiking in a park with his son. As I look back, he writes, I noticed that the trail I was walking on lost all sense of familiarity. There were trees I didn't see. Certain plants I know for sure weren't there before. But regardless, I kept my composure and stared deeply into the woods to see what made that snapping sound. I scanned the area and didn't see any life forms. But for some reason, my eyes started to fixate on a particularly unnerving dark section of the forest. For whatever reason... My entire body started locking up, 
and every single alarm bell in my head was pinging. No matter how hard I tried to focus on this dark patch, I couldn't see anything. I had the weirdest sensation of being able to see each individual branch and plant in high detail, but I couldn't focus on the scene overall. It was super blurry. I also felt my internal fight-or-flight mechanism flipping between the two decisions faster than a coin in a coin toss. And that was his story. Others say that there's nothing mysterious about the disappearances at all, that it's a normal amount of people to fall off a cliff, drown, or get eaten by bears. National parks, like many other systems in our government, are vast and don't always communicate with each other, which is why some say there isn't a database that lists all the missing people. Others say, wait a second, these parks are federally run, and they all have to account to a higher authority up the chain. You bet they have a file on missing persons and strange occurrences. Another explanation for the strangeness of the missing people is lost person behavior. Typical behavior for people who believe they are lost is not always what we think it should be. While there are many troubling cases if you dig deep enough, the same is true of missing person cases at large. The world is a scary place full of mysteries we'll never know the answer to. One concept that has become the focus of much speculation and wonder is that of other realities or dimensions, universes, whatever you want to call them, existing parallel to our own beyond some unseen veil that separates us. If this is so, and these other realms do coexist with our own, then is it possible to jump between them? Can we push through that mysterious veil into new alternate realms besides our own? Can those from outside suddenly grab us and take us across? There have been strange accounts over the years that seem to suggest that this may indeed be so, and that not only is it possible, but that it has already been done, mostly by people who seem to have made this shift between realities quite unintentionally. With some tales of travel to parallel dimensions, it seems the shift is via a doorway to some past or future version of our reality. Back in 1988, Strange Magazine published an article written by Ken Mew titled Time Traveler. The article was about the shocking account of a man who would go by the name L.C. Back in 1969, L.C. and his business associate, Bob, were driving along Highway 167 towards the oil center city of Lafayette after finishing lunch in the southwest Louisiana town of Abbeville, United States. It was the 20th of October, around 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon. The day was perfect with a blue sky and cool breeze. Up ahead, they spotted an old turtleback auto going really slow. They were intrigued by the vehicle. It wasn't something either of them had seen before. Very unique and definitely antique. But here's the thing. Even though the vehicle looked like a blast from the past, it was in mint condition. The two overtook the vehicle, but not before slowing down right next to it to check it out in detail. The car had a very distinct, large, bright orange license plate with the year 1940 clearly printed on it, which was quite odd because antique cars like the one in question weren't allowed to be driven on the road unless it was being used for a ceremonial parade. Things just got weirder from there. The person driving the car was a young woman dressed in what appeared to be a vintage dress from the 40s, complete with a hat and fur coat. There was a small child as well, dressed in a heavy coat and a cap. 
As they pulled up next to the car, the lady started panicking. One could make out her face going pale with fear. She frantically started looking back and forth as if she was in the middle of somewhere unknown, as if she really needed some help. She looked like she was about ready to cry. Elsie asked her if she needed any help, to which she responded in the affirmative. But at no point did she roll down the window or even look him in the eye. After requesting her several times to halt the vehicle, they finally saw her pull over on the side of the road. Elsie and Bob passed her and pulled over in front of her. But as soon as they looked behind, the vehicle was gone. Poof! Vanished into thin air. This was a highway without any traffic, so disappearing like this was impossible. Shocked and not knowing how to describe what had just happened, Elsie and Bob decided to keep driving on. A little while later, while they were still on Highway 167, they saw another new car pass a very old car at a really slow speed. It was apparently so slow that it looked like the cars had come to a halt. As soon as the new car pulled over in front of the other car, the same thing happened. It stopped, and then suddenly disappeared. They couldn't believe their eyes. Even the guy in the other car was completely shocked. So the three started talking and describing what they had seen. They started walking around the area. The third guy insisted they should be reporting this to the police, as this, according to him, was a missing person case. Elsie and Bob refused, more so because they had no idea where the woman and the child, along with the car, had vanished. The third man couldn't go to the police without these two. Everyone would think this guy was mad. But he exchanged phone numbers and addresses and kept talking about the incident with them just to make sure he wasn't losing his mind. Could she have been a time traveler from the past who went forward in time? Or could she have been a person from the past who could never go back, stuck in limbo? Lots of options and no answers. The same thing appears to happen the other way around, with glimpses into some future dimension. One such rather well-known case concerns a British air marshal named Sir Victor Goddard, who in 1935 found himself aboard a biplane going to inspect a dilapidated old airfield near Edinburgh, Scotland, in a location known as Drem. Goddard encountered severe weather on his way to the airfield, fighting his way through lashing rain. But upon approach, suddenly exited into calm, clear skies. Looking down at the airfield, rather than the litter-strewn, weed-choked mess that he had expected to see, he allegedly saw a completely new and renovated airstrip that seemed to be in use. This was all very odd indeed, yet Goddard noticed that there were even mechanics and other personnel busily running about as if the airfield had never been closed at all. Upon the new airstrip were four yellow planes of a model which Goddard failed to recognize. The unknown make of the planes, as well as their abnormal coloration, and the personnel's strangely designed uniforms of blue, when it was customary to wear khaki, struck the astonished airmen as all very odd indeed. Goddard would many years later revisit the airbase and find that it had blue coveralled workers and those same yellow planes. Did he somehow manage to travel to another future version of our world and see what was to come? Some sort of parallel alternate universe? Seems that way. Who knows? 
Did you ever wonder if Ben Franklin had visited another dimension? He discovers how to harness the power of electricity. He invents the Franklin stove. He creates the post office. He starts the Franklin mint. He invents bifocals. He starts the first zoo. He creates new and unique musical instruments. And these are just a few of his highlights. You can't help but ask, otherworldly inspiration? This spine-tingling story was part of the book The Little Giant Book of Eerie Thrills and Unspeakable Chills, written by Ron Edwards, C.B. Colby, and John Macklin. According to the authors, back in 1932, newspaper reporter J. Bernard Hutton and photographer Joaquin Brandt were sent to do a feature story on the Hamburg shipyard in Germany. After completing their assignment, just as they were about to leave the premises, they heard the sound of aircraft engines, only to look up and see the sky full of fighter planes. Anti-aircraft batteries opened fire and bombs started going off. All of a sudden, this place had become a war zone in peacetime. Things were exploding. Buildings were collapsing. There was death and chaos everywhere. Before rushing out to save their lives, Hutton even asked a security guard if there was something they could do to help out, but was asked to immediately leave the area instead. As the two drove into Hamburg, things changed. The sky cleared up, and everything was back to normal. There was no blood or violence. Buildings were all fine. No aircraft dropping bombs overhead. No one seemed to panic. It was as if nothing had happened. When Hutton and Brandt looked behind towards the shipyard, they couldn't spot anything wrong with it. No damage, no smoke coming from the buildings. Shocking. The newspaper office obviously did not believe the two. Even the pictures that Brandt had been taking during the attack showed everything to be normal. The shipyard looked as good as new. Their colleagues dismissed their claim by deciding that they must have stopped on their way for a drink, and it was the alcohol making them see things. Bernard Hutton later moved to London just before the Second World War began. In 1943, what he read in a newspaper one morning almost made his heart stop. It was a story about a successful raid by a Roy Air Force squadron on the Hamburg shipyard. The resemblance was uncanny. This was an exact representation of what he and Brandt had witnessed 11 years back. How could that have happened? Good question. There were only two answers. Either they saw what they saw, or they lied about it. And what was the motivation for lying? Then there's the story of the man who met himself in the future. On the 30th of August in 2006, 36-year-old Hakan Norkvist came back home to find his kitchen flooded with water. Here's the story in his own words. It all happened on the afternoon of the 30th of August, 2006. It was a beautiful day, and I was on my way home from a job in Fargestaden. I checked. It's in Sweden. When I got home, I found water on the kitchen floor. Somehow there was a leak. I got my tools and opened up the doors to the sink and started to work. When I reached in to examine the pipes, they seemed to be further in than I remembered. I had to crawl inside the cabinet, and as I did so, I discovered that it just continued. So I kept on crawling further and further into the cabinet. In the end of the tunnel, I saw a light, and when I got there, I realized I was in the future. I met myself as 72 years old. The year was 2042. 
I did a lot of tests on him to see if he was really me. And the strange thing is that he knew everything about me, where I hid my secret stuff when I was in first grade, and what the score was in the soccer match against Voxo Nora in the summer of 88. Other questions. He knew it all. He was me. We even had the same tattoo, although his was a little faded. He told me some of the stuff that will happen, but not so much, and I promised not to tell anyone. I made a film with my mobile phone. Unfortunately, the quality's not the best, but it's what I've got. Actually, I don't care if people think I'm a liar. I know I'm not. I met myself in the future, and that was fine. That's all I know. But it happened to me, so probably it must have happened to somebody else. His story ends there. I watched the YouTube film of him meeting himself in the future, and no, he hasn't profited from this in any way. It's pretty interesting. That name again? Hakan Norkvist, H-A-K-A-N-N-O-R-D-K-V-I-S-T. While these may very well be instances of another phenomenon known as time slips, in which a witness glimpses pieces of another time, couldn't they also be trips to other dimensions, set in different eras? Other cases seem to be not only time slips, but more firmly rooted in a clear shift between realities. One rather bizarre tale involves a strange man who is found wandering aimlessly about the German village of Frankfurt an der Oder in the district of Labus in 1851. This stranger claimed that his name was Jofar Voren and that he had come from a country called Laxaria, which many of you may realize is a country that doesn't exist. This country was claimed to lie far away over the sea in a region called Secria and that his people were Christian and had considerable geographical knowledge. Authorities who questioned him found that he spoke imperfect, broken German, but could not understand any other European languages at all. Instead, he could speak and write Laxarian, another language he called Abramian, which he claimed was the written clerical language his people used. When asked why he had made the journey to Germany, he claimed that he had been looking for his long-lost brother, but that he had unfortunately found himself shipwrecked during his voyage. When asked where he had been shipwrecked, he said that he did not know, and modern maps seemed to baffle and confuse him, leaving him unable to point out where he had arrived. Apparently, Jofar lived out the rest of his life in Berlin, and news articles of the day claimed that he was scientifically studied, but it is unclear what was discovered from any of this. Was this a traveler from some other dimension? or an elaborate prank? The answer may never be found out. Other more recent accounts from the 2000s are just as weird. According to one online account, a poster calling himself Padjo95 realized how he and his younger brother had one day ventured out to go exploring around the woods surrounding their isolated rural home in southern Arkansas. They headed down the road that led to their house, trying to find some new path or trail that they could explore. But what they eventually found surprised them. As they walked along, they came across a brand new-looking paved road, looking decidedly out of place, and something they would have surely noticed before, after living in an area for 12 years. They explained it away by speculating that it must have been built rather recently, although nobody had seen any road work being done. Curious, the two brothers set out along this strange road, and things would only get more bizarre from there.
According to the witness, as soon as they set foot on the road, the air became noticeably colder, and additionally the road was lined by unusual thick red trees, similar to redwood trees, which were of a type they'd never seen before. They supposedly walked several miles along the road and then decided to head back, noting that the air immediately became warmer again as soon as they stepped off it. As it was getting dark, they decided to come back and explore this odd road again the next day. But when they returned the following afternoon, they could find no sign of the road or those weird trees they had seen. They reportedly scoured the area for hours, but it was as if the road and its trees had never existed at all. On top of this, their parents denied that any road work had been done in the area and insisted there were no paved roads anywhere near them. Had that road they found been one into another reality that had temporarily brushed up against our own? We'll never know. Another poster on Reddit R Paranormal claimed that one day at around dusk, he had gone off to get something to eat at the nearby McDonald's, taking his car and his dog along for the ride. As they drove, the witness claimed that the street lights they passed would flicker out as they approached, only to blink back on as they passed. This was quite strange enough, but things would get very odd when they reached the last turn out of their neighborhood. At this point, the witness said, I felt a wave of something pour over me. I heard my dog whimper. I looked back at her, and she had ducked back into the middle of the back seat, tail between her legs, with her fur sticking straight out. I felt like I went through a thick sheet of static electricity, honestly, and I began hearing a loud feedback noise inside my head, and the world got blurry. This went on for a few seconds before it cleared up. At this point, the car also stalled, but luckily kicked back to life when it was restarted, and the witness drove on. When they were on the main road, it was noticed that the streetlights looked dramatically different from the way they always had, and the lights that were usually on the meridian had been replaced by trees. He drove on through this surreal scene and finally made it to the McDonald's, which was more or less where it had always been, but oddly, in a different building. Along the way, other oddities had popped up as well, such as models of cars he'd never seen before, with logos from companies that didn't exist yet with normal-looking license plates. By this time, the witness was starting to get unsettled, indeed, but nevertheless continued on to the drive through where things would continue to spiral further into weirdness. The items on the menu were significantly more expensive than usual, and when the witness went to pay with his credit card as usual, he was told that it wasn't accepted there. The clerk had then handed him a device that was described as looking like my dad's blood pressure monitor, which he was apparently supposed to put his finger into. Wary of doing so, he decided to pay in cash, but the clerk examined the bill for a while and finally accepted it without giving any change or receipt, just an odd piece of paper citing the balance. When asked why there was no change, the clerk casually said that they had no cash and could only give cash vouchers. Getting the food itself would prove to be the most bizarre of all, as the worker began to behave very strangely while handing it over. The witness explained, His face and body motions were moving and resetting, like when you tilt an N64 game slightly out of the console. I didn't have time to be terrified during the moment, because as this happened, I felt the wave of electricity come over me again. 
just like last time, I heard my dog whimper, and when I looked back, she was crouched in the back, fur extended. And just like last time, I heard a loud feedback noise in my head. My eyes took a second to adjust, but when the world came into focus, I saw that I was in a parking lot. I recognized everything this time. This was the parking lot in which the McDonald's I'm used to is placed. And sure enough, the McDonald's was visible in my rearview mirror at its usual location. I have no clue what happened, honestly. What in the world did happen there? Did this man somehow pass briefly into another parallel dimension to order dinner at some alternate reality McDonald's? Whether the account is true or not, it is still very odd indeed. Interestingly, there's been much speculation done on the existence of such alternate versions of our reality, and theories on the existence of such realms have been floating around since 1954, when a doctoral candidate at Princeton University by the name of Hugh Everett first popularized the idea that there was a potentially infinite number of different versions of reality layered on top of each other, of which ours is only one. Next week we'll discuss time travelers. Do they exist? There are lots of stories and purported photographic and video evidence that suggests that we're being visited by time travelers on a regular basis. We'll discuss vanished cities, Hitler's time machine, and some very strange vanished and reappeared stories. We'll discuss portals to other dimensions. And what happened at the Skinwalker Ranch when a radio station personality strapped himself to an outdoor chair at the ranch, hoping for a glimpse of the strange beings that had been appearing there? The Skinwalker Ranch believed to be a rare portal to another dimension. We ask that you, t- we ask that you take a few minutes and send us a review at Apple Podcasts for any or all of our 1001 shows. Here are a few reviews to inspire you. This one from Shamrock Traveler, five stars. I find everything about this podcast very interesting, well-written, easy listening, and engaging. Thank you. This one, Great Variety, Great Quality, by Barefoot Indie. You never know what you're going to get each week with this podcast. True history, war heroes, westerns, conspiracies, ghost stories. But it's always entertaining. I particularly like the Urban Legends series. And this one, five stars by Hoosier2233. Always interesting. Worth giving this one a listen. And this one by CansFan, five stars. Fascinating podcast. If you have an interest in history, this is the podcast for you. No revisionist, agenda-driven presentations here. Well-researched and refreshingly unbiased stories. My favorite, not hockey-based podcast. And this one by J.R. Indy. Very good. Five stars. I just discovered this podcast. Host does a great job keeping the narration going. No fluff. Keep up the good work. And this one from New Mexico Gal. I look forward to the series. All the 1001 podcasts are expertly produced, educational, and entertaining. And this one, keep up the great work from Catahoula, Texas, 123. Great storytelling, captivating, and informative. Five stars. Thank you, everybody, for taking the time to send us those reviews. We appreciate them very much. And when we get those reviews, it helps keep us in the rankings at Apple Podcast. 
And wherever you listen to podcasts, take time to subscribe to our other shows, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. I will admit, we've taken a break from Radio Days for a while, but we'll get back there. You'll still find shows every week at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Thank you so much for being great fans, and stay tuned for part two of this story next week. We'll be back with you soon.